Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In the world of American politics, with Donald Trump facing criminal charges, polarization reaching extreme levels, and the prospect of a 2024 presidential election between the two oldest candidates in American history, the idea of normal seems almost quaint. But of course, Washington DC remains the capital city of the world's most powerful country. So how does American politics work in this bewildering age? To help answer that question, I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Terrace, who is a Washington Post writer and author of the new book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Ben, um, I've I've had the privilege of, of getting a copy of your book. It, it is really a fascinating read and, and, and you your style is very much to, to sort of paint portraits of individuals. But perhaps um, before we get into some of those details, t- t- tell our listeners what drew you to write this book and, and sort of what you're trying to achieve with it. Sure. I've been covering Washington now for, I don't know, about a decade, which is about nine years longer than I promised my wife that we'd be living in Washington. Um, <laughs> and in that time, I've, I feel like I've kind of gotten a handle on, on how things work and how they don't work. The Donald Trump years were obviously very disorienting for everybody. I mean, it just kind of threw in the face of everyone that they didn't really know anything about how things worked. And when Biden was elected president afterwards, there was this kind of belief that, hey, maybe things could go back to normal. I, I looked around and, and I just thought, okay, A, what, what is normal? And B, there's no way things are going to just go back. Things have changed, right? And, and so the book is called The Big Break because the country went through a big break, but it's also a series of portraits of people trying to seek out their own big breaks, uh, trying to put something together in this kind of new normal that is, is Washington after Trump. Let's talk about Trump, because certainly to outsiders, observers of, of US politics, particularly from Europe, and particularly after the, the events of January the 6th, the insurrection, I think a lot of people assume, well, there's no way that Trump has any future in American politics. And yet, almost without missing a beat, it took seemed to take only a few weeks for most Republicans to find a way to forgive Trump. What What's your best understanding of, of that, which in a way feels like the biggest question in American politics at the moment? Well, you know, it's not just because of the name of this podcast, but I think there is sort of a bunker mentality that happens, right? Which is when you are on a team and that team uh, becomes under attack, it's, it's natural in some ways to kind of dig in, right? I mean, y- your identity is associated with the Republican Party or with Donald Trump. It's natural to try to spin your way out of that, I guess, or to dig in and, and, and figure out a way to, to make it work. And as much as people would like to move on, there's just too much identity uh, connected to parties and to a belief system that moving on would almost be like moving on from who you are, from from your from your friends, from your belief system. And I, I just don't think people have the ability to do that easily. And how about Trump himself? Because in a way, the party affiliation you can understand, particularly in a city such as Washington, D.C., where politics is everything, that I guess, you know, you have two major parties. It's a very defining identity. But Trump, even for the Republican Party, is a sort of aberration. It is the Republican Party changed forever, do you think, as a result of Trump? So the vibe has definitely shifted. I mean, you can see it with every other candidate that's running. They, they emulate him in certain ways. 
if Trump did this and it was you know viable for him and 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 helpful for him, maybe it will be for us too. So even with Trump gone, Trumpism is is here to stay at least for a while. And I suppose one core aspect of this is politics as entertainment. And of course, U.S. politics has famously always had this very kind of showbiz side to it. And you know, President Reagan being perhaps a, a good example of that. But Trump is uniquely qualified in that department. You know, his his entire kind of persona is is a reality television star playing a billionaire. Do, do you think that it's because of his mastery of that genre that makes him so successful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big part of it, sure. There's, you know, there was always a lot of talk when he came to Washington that, you know, he was an aberration or, or, or he made no sense. Uh, what, what's he doing here? He, you know, he's such an outsider. But really what he was doing was exploiting something that Washington always kind of loved. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, Reagan is a great example, but even on a smaller scale, People are successful in Washington when they can build a brand for themselves, when they're able to get press attention, when people can't help but pay attention to them. There's this kind of all press is good press mentality. Trump is kind of impossible for a lot of folks to turn their attention away from. Let's talk a bit about the, the book more specifically. The title, The Big Break, as you explained, you know, it talks about the way in which individuals take themselves to Washington, D.C., and sort of look for their big opportunity. And I think there's something very American about that, that the capital city of a country not being one of the, the great population centers, you know, unlike, say, London and Paris are for, for the UK and France, respectively. Can you say something about the way Washington, D.C. is and how that affects the way that people go there kind of as outsiders and try to become something in that city? Sure. I mean, first of all, I'll just say that, you know, Washington is a lot of places, right? I mean, there's Washington, the city that people live in that have nothing to do with politics. You know, there's that Washington. There's also thousands of people that come to Washington for the political side of things, but specifically just to do good, who want to figure out policies and and move the, the country in a direction that they think is better, right? So there's people like that, too. But there are a lot of people that treat Washington, D.C. almost like it's the new frontier, right? Like pioneers coming out to the new frontier to make it big, to find fame, influence, um, uh, riches. Look, if you really want to be rich, you can go to New York. And if you really want to be famous, you can go to Hollywood. But in, in Washington, there are opportunities not unlike those. And what makes it so interesting is people come from all over the country, obviously. It's a bubble in a way, but also it's a place that has kind of more representation from the rest of the country than anywhere, just by definition of, of, of its existence as the capital. And so, so many people are coming here trying to figure out how to make it big. But in this book that, I'm, that I wrote, I think I showcase that it can also be a place that can ruin people. At the end of it, everything can go wrong, you know? I won't give away too many spoilers, but the book is full of these sort of extraordinary... It reminds me a bit of, of, of the great novel Vanity Fair, of this sort of this world in which individuals are sort of constantly striving to to better themselves. And, and, you know, some make it and others fall by the wayside. Well, that's a huge compliment. I, I appreciate that. And, and, and sort of how I think about Washington in general as a feature writer, somebody who writes political profiles, Washington is a very rich environment for profile writing. I mean, it's all these people from all over the place with different backgrounds, different ideologies, different tactics on how to be successful, all smashed together in this one small city uh, in the halls of Congress or, you know, on K Street where all the lobbying gets done, all these people are just confronted with one another. And you don't see that normally. I mean, if you go to a small town, you know, in the middle of the country, a lot of folks all have similar beliefs and, and come from the same place. And 
Washington just forces all these people into confrontations, into allegiances you wouldn't expect. And it's just very, it's a very dramatic place. Ben, when you dig into some of the the most kind of vociferous players, particularly in the sort of the, the Trump universe, people like Paul Gosar, J.D. Vance, the, the Ohio senator, these are people who up until the moment they were associated with Donald Trump, don't appear to have this persona of really kind of far out politics, really kind of dug in entrenched views. So is, is there something about Washington that's doing that to them? Or is it something about the, the MAGA movement specifically? Or, or you know, what, what's going on there? It's hard to paint with too broad a brush on this, because I think there are a lot of people who always believed the things they believed. And suddenly Donald Trump came around and gave them the permission to be vocal about it. But I also think a lot of people can recognize where the power is, where the influence is, where the money is, and they can say, I'm going to you know, buy that stock. I, I, Matt Schlapp is a character in this book. He was a guy who worked uh, for the George W. Bush White House, the so-called Compassionate Conservative White House. He was the political director there, which meant he you know, was at least bought it enough to, the, to that belief system to promote it everywhere he went. And now is one of Trump's most loyal um, kind of lieutenants. I think one of the big reasons there is because he was able to make his lobby shop grow exponentially because he was somebody who had Donald Trump's ear. Uh, he was somebody who hosts a, a conference every year called CPAC, which has always been a big conference, but became this kind of Donald Trump yearly rally. It put him in the center of the political universe. And a lot of people moved to Washington for exactly that reason. And so where are Matt's true ideological beliefs? Is it more compassionate conservative George Bush or more kind of MAGA warrior? I, I don't know, but I can tell you that he definitely uh, was more successful because of this move to, to the Trump wing of things. But again, this is dangerous territory to, to become kind of so far in one direction. You know, Matt is another one of these characters in the book that goes through a very dramatic year, uh, not just because of his politics, also because of allegations of uh, sexual misconduct. But, you know, these are people who are playing with fire when they kind of become warriors for a cause. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Matt Schlapp because, he, yeah, he features in, in this book in a particular way that is sort of intriguing and, and, and how he's, he's been on this journey. But we, we do end up talking quite a lot about uh, people in the MAGA movement. But your book, you know, there's, there's loads of characters who are on the other side of politics. And uh, I, you know, unsurprisingly, probably most listeners to this podcast albeit in the UK, were would be Democrats if they were in America. I imagine that a lot of your readers are Democrats. Is But is this same kind of maybe slightly kind of grifter culture very present in the Democratic side of politics as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to make a false equivalence about, you know, the two parties, right? You know, the fealty to Donald Trump is not at all similar to you know, the loyalty to Joe Biden, for example. Democrats like Joe Biden, but there's not a cult of personality around him the same way. Uh, but I will say that some of the kind of Trumpiness uh, and the success of Donald Trump has, yeah, bled over to, to the Democratic side. How could it not? How could you lose an election to a guy and not try to figure out some ways to capitalize on things he capitalized on? And that could be, 
you know, maybe some kind of populist rhetoric to, to win back, you know, working class voters. And it wouldn't be right wing populism, obviously, but it could still be trying to win the voters that were lost to Donald Trump. And there's a character in this book named Sean McKelvey, who uh, was a, is a Democratic pollster, a rising star. Um, and I felt like he had kind of a little bit of Trump in him. Um, even some of his friends could, would kind of say like, oh yeah, he's like Donald Trump for Democrats, Donald Trump for good. Uh, Sean would make political bets, like actual money wagers on elections, on legislation with friends online, you know, just had a gambling addiction basically on politics. And he did it so openly that it didn't seem like a scandal to a lot of people in Washington. I wrote about it. I, I found it fascinating. I couldn't believe that he was talking about these things and and doing these things, but there's something kind of Trump-like about that, right? Which is an invincibility uh, that people feel when they're on the rise, when their, their kind of brand is soaring you can get away with a lot of stuff until suddenly you can't. Yeah. And it's, you mentioned that there's Sean McCauley, who, as you say, is, is this sort of political gambler. Is that a feature of, of the current American political scene that it requires that sort of personality type? I don't know if it requires it, but it certainly rewards a lot of people with that personality type. Yeah. I mean, it's people who are willing to make big bets going all in on on a certain kind of messaging. Or uh, I'm going to vocally support Donald Trump early and often, even if he seems like he's down in the dumps. And that way, if he wins, I was an early investor. I get to reap the benefits from that. Um, there's lobbyists out there who make big bets that they're going to land these contracts and they're going to be able to um, you know, make connections to the administration and, uh, you know, rake in millions of dollars. I mean, it, it is a place where people have to take risk to be successful because nobody really does know what's going to happen next. And so everybody has to kind of uh, stake a claim. Otherwise, they're just going to be left behind. Yeah. Another character who who I was fascinated by, and, and this speaks to my own backstory, I, I was a, a British diplomat for a while, is this guy, Robert Strick. In his own terms, you know, he's sort of privatizing American diplomacy. Can you can you sort of explain to the listeners who he is and what he does? Yeah, this guy is an amazing story. Um, he was a longtime lobbyist in Washington who never really made it work before Donald Trump. You know, he had some successful-ish years, but ended up, you know, running out of town without any money, went into the wine business out in the West Coast and kind of was kicking around out there for a while, but was a low-level volunteer on the Donald Trump campaign, which did not have a, you know, a, a serious hierarchy or infrastructure, which meant he kind of got to know all the most important people helping Trump become president. And when Trump won, he flew himself to Washington and spent, you know, four days partying there because he felt like he could, you know, be part of this, this new administration somehow or, or have a piece of, of the action because, you know, there weren't a lot of lobbyists who had any connections to the Trump administration. He was out drinking uh, late at night with his friend at the Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown when yeah. a dog comes and starts sniffing his crotch and he <laughs> pushes the dog away, smoking a cigar with one hand and pushing the dog away with the other. And a woman comes up to him and apologizes and she has an, has an accent and he's like, oh, are you from England? And she's like, she's like, fuck you, I'm not from England, I'm from New Zealand. And it turned out that she worked at the New Zealand embassy and was in a tough spot because she was having a difficult time connecting her country with the new administration. They were prepared for Hillary Clinton like everybody else. And she's yep. like, yeah, I can't get my bosses on the phone with Donald Trump. And Strick is sitting there and he says, oh yeah, I can do that for you. And he didn't know if he could really, but you know, he knew people who had 
the president-elect's phone number, and he was able to make this connection. And so suddenly this guy who had no real footing in Washington is the kind of person who can, can connect a country with the president of the United States. And that is very powerful. He's off to the races and gets all these contracts for foreign governments and foreign officials and foreign companies raking in millions and millions and millions of dollars just as a guy who knows the right people. It's extraordinary. And particularly, you know, someone who's come from the the formal world of official diplomacy to read this stuff. It's, you know, it's kind of mind boggling. Um, but something that strikes me here is, is the power of money in this story. And of course, people know that political campaigns in America consume vast amounts of cash. But it is still very striking as a reader from a country where, you know, a few thousand pounds would be a significant political donation to be reading about this environment where the unit is basically the million. Do you think that money and the sort of excess of it is the core feature of American politics? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a core feature. Um, it's it's a huge deal. I mean, a lot, a lot of the people I spent time with were either raising millions of dollars themselves, finding people to raise millions of dollars, were connected to billionaires. Sean, the pollster, was doing work for Gabe Bankman-Fried, who is the brother of Sam Bankman-Fried, which meant he could collect a lot of money from the kind of Bankman-Fried crypto empire. Sam Bankman-Fried had billions of dollars and kind of nothing to spend it on because he believed in this philosophy, or at least talked about this philosophy called effective altruism, where you would earn money to spend it on good. And he had convinced himself or convinced others that one way to spend that money on good was to help finance political campaigns. The whole place is just awash in, in, in money. During the Trump years, a lot of that was grassroots money. You know, you could just kind of put out a flyer saying, we're trying to resist this authoritarian. And, you know, thousands, if not millions of Americans would donate some amount of money and that would flow into Washington and prop up all these organizations. After Trump, it was a little bit harder to, to tap into the grassroots, but you know, new billionaires like the Bankman Freeds were around to, to help float campaigns. I mean, it's just, it's a money game. And so a big part of winning the messaging war, winning the elect, you know, winning elections is figuring out how to get more money than the other person. It does seem, it, it's not a bold prediction to say that we're looking at a Biden-Trump 2024 electoral run. And if you did have a second Trump presidency, do you think this world that you portray just becomes more sort of more extreme? I'm not necessarily talking about the politics, although that might be part of it. Will you be writing a sequel uh, to this book in five years time that which will have barely believable anecdotes in it? Uh, well, I hope not to have to write another book uh, <laughs> about, about these characters in Washington. It is an exhausting and difficult process. Um, <laughs> but if Trump were run out of town and never got to be president again, then people might think of it as an aberration and think, okay, uh, he could get away with things because he was a reality show president and he was so famous and so entertaining that he could do things that other people couldn't do. But if he can come back from indictments and arraignments and um, a humiliating electoral defeat that he spun into a win, I just don't see how other people don't try to emulate that as well. Well, that that seems uh, grimly believable. Uh, time will tell. Um we're recording this in the week where we've seen what looks likely to be the political downfall of Boris Johnson, our very own mini Trump. But do you think, is, is it possible that there's a world in which this kind of really flagrant 
dishonesty, which seems to have taken over some bits of politics, actually does get punished. And people look at it and say, actually, that doesn't work anymore. Well, certainly if Trump, you know, ends up in jail or losing again, some people will take the lesson that it's time to move on. I don't know what percentage of people, because there is a real hold on a chunk of the American population, that even if that happens, there's a lot of people who are going to believe that it was all politically motivated or the election was stolen. So it's not like it's the, the, the curse doesn't get broken, but there'll be some of it, I imagine. I'm biased in this particular way, which is I think the most important thing uh, a democracy can have is a strong media presence. You know, journalism is incredibly important. Truth to power matters more than ever. Uh, but what makes it so difficult is everybody is getting their information from from different silos. Um and so I feel like for, and so I'm just hoping that, you know, more journalism uh, enterprises uh, figure out a way to make money, figure out a way to get the message out, uh, hire good people, do good work. And I think if that can happen, then some people will be able to, you know, have an arbiter of truth that they can actually believe in. Well, that feels like a perfect point to end this discussion. And of course, one way that you can support great journalism will be by buying Ben Terrace's book, The Big Break widely available and I can heartily recommend it. So Ben, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a blast. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Chris Jones. Art direction by James Parrott. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis group editor Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>